Now take your Bible and open up to John 15. Uh, Again, we're here the night before the death of our Lord. He and his 11 disciples have left the uh, upper room. They began to walk their, uh, make their way through Jerusalem, headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus gives this analogy or this illustration, uh, and again, I think the point of which is determined genuine saving faith. Who's a true follower of Christ? Who's a true follower of Christ and how do you know if you're genuinely saved? I really think is the bottom line issue here in this text. So John chapter 15. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. uh, And uh, they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you, to worship Christ, uh, to thank you for the price that Christ paid Uh, And and again, to just uh, sing your praises, literally, uh, for uh, your grace to us uh, through Christ. Lord, we uh, pray for uh, this upcoming uh, uh, election on Tuesday and pray that you would give us not what we deserve, uh, but that you would give us grace and and mercy and that you would um, uh, bring righteous men and righteous women uh, to be leaders of this country, that this uh, nation might uh, turn back from the uh, apostasy and, and the rebellion against you, that you and your kindness, again, uh, completely undeserved, uh, you and your kindness would, uh, again, pour out truth, and that there would be a spirit of humility and, and repentance and faith in Christ, that men would see that their only hope in this world is not politics or politicians, but our only hope is Christ. So we pray your wisdom on this day coming up next week. We pray for the leadership of this country that you might call men who are leading in rebellion to repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, And we pray again for this morning that you might open our hearts uh, to receive your truth, that we might learn the lesson that you have for us in this portion of Scripture as we study uh, this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I've said previously, there's nothing more important in, in any level than to make sure that you're a true follower of Christ. Because the reality is that once a man's born, he lives forever. So every being, every man, every woman created uh, in the image of God lives forever. Once you're born, you live forever. Uh, once this life is over, there's another one to come. And the Bible says very clearly there are only two places where men will spend eternity. That's either in heaven or hell. And the issue that determines your eternal destiny is your relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. And the word that Jesus uses in this portion of scripture 
uh, that we're going to look at. He uses it ten times uh, in six different verses. It's the word abide. Abide. You see it in verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, and 10. That's the word he uses to describe a proper relationship with him. Now the word abide is meno, and it just means to remain or to be fixed or to be in a fixed state to endure. In, in the context, it really means to be in unbroken communion with Christ. And again, the basic truth the Lord is trying to communicate, I think, in the illustration, is the importance of abiding. And that abiding really reveals whether or not a person is truly saved. Again, look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So the importance of abiding in Christ. One uh, writer puts it like this. He says, the Lord's command in verse four, uh, verse 4, abide in me, is a plea to the false disciples of Christ to repent and express true faith in him. And it also serves as an encouragement or to encourage genuine believers to abide in him to the fullest, deepest, most complete sense. That's what we need. We need to be abiding in Christ. And again, the proof that you are saved, the proof that you have a saving relationship with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the proof that you are abiding in Christ is there will be spiritual evidence in your life. There will be evidence of spiritual uh, life, spiritual fruit in your life. Uh, Again, look down at verse 8. Verse 8 states that fact. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, uh, much fruit, and so prove uh, to be my disciples. So again, I think a large part of the illustration has to determine is to help us determine who, again, is a genuine believer in Christ. Because sometimes people look like they are, but the reality is they're not. Sometimes people look like they are believers in Christ. The reality is they're not. They've been deceived, sometimes deceived by Satan, sometimes deceived by self, sometimes deceived by sin or all of the above. Now, again, remember, we're in the upper room. We've just left the upper room. And the Lord and his 11 disciples are making their way through the garden of, or towards, uh, through Jerusalem to the garden of Gethsemane. So his time with them is coming to a rapid conclusion. They don't know that, but he does because he knows the future. So the events of his arrest and crucifixion are literally just hours away. So this is the final discourse he is going to have with them before his arrest and crucifixion and so forth. So out of love, he really wants to warn them. He wants to warn them about false faith. And this is really the last opportunity for him to speak about those things that are vitally important to him, those things that are foremost on his heart. Again, what does it really mean to be truly associated with him in a salvific fashion or a life-giving fashion? Now, I told you that I believe, and I'm sticking to it, I think that a large part of the discussion here at the moment has to do with the defection of Judas. Judas has left the group. He's gone out to betray Christ. Uh, He's going to hand Christ over to the religious leaders of uh, Israel, where, again, he's going to be arrested and crucified. And these men are going to have to process that spiritual defection. Because when Judas was with them, he gave no appearance uh, that he was a traitor. Everybody trusted him. In fact, he was the, the guy who held their purse, right? He held the money. And even when he departs from the upper room, everyone has no concern about him because they thought he was leaving to go do something Christ asked him to do, do something helpful for the poor, perhaps something for the group. But after Judas is exposed as the betrayer, these men are going to have to deal with that defection. 
So how are these men to process and understand Judas' apostate defection? How do you determine true faith from false faith? Because, again, there are some people who appear to be attached to Jesus, but just like Judas, in reality, they do not have a saving relationship with him. So, again, what is the mark of genuine salvation? And, again, the answer is going to be genuine salvation, or the mark of genuine salvation is going to be found in fruitfulness. Spiritual fruitfulness. He says that term uh, about producing fruit over and over again in this portion of Scripture also. Again, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, here it is, and so prove to be my disciples. So the genuine mark, or the genuine mark of salvation, or mark of genuine salvation, is fruitfulness. It's not one's claim to Christ. It's fruitfulness. Because what does that claim to Christ produce in your life? That's the issue. Not the words that come out of your mouth, but your life. And your claim to be associated with the Savior. Now, there are two kinds of branches in the illustration. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So you have unfruitful branches, which Christ says they're going to be taken away. They're going to be gathered together, cast into a fire, and then burned. It says that in verse 6. Now, this is Judas and every other false follower of Christ all those who were never true followers, true disciples of Christ. That's that category, the unfruitful branch. Then you have the fruitful branch. The fruitful branch, the text says, are pruned so that they might bear more fruit. That's the 11 true disciples with Christ at the moment, and that's the true disciples with Christ throughout the age of the church. So you have the false and the true. Now, again, one more time, they, they are leaving the upper room. They've left the upper room. They're making their way through uh, uh, Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. All these events future are about to unfold. But in this one last talk, as he begins this discussion on the nature of saving faith, one last time he declares his deity. Right? He, he asserts his deity. And I told you before, this is something he's done repeatedly throughout his ministry. He declared that he was God come in the flesh. And again, you better get Jesus Christ right. It's vitally important to, uh, to your eternal destination. John 10 and 38, I and the Father are one. He says we're one in nature, one in essence. Emphasizing again the equality with God. His equality with God in the most clear terms. Uh, John 13, 19. He says, from now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. And again, I told you I am is an affirmation of deity. He is employing the name that God used when he first revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. Moses was told he's going to go to the people of Israel. He asked, who will I say sent me? And you say to them, I am has sent me. I am. So again, at the top of the chapter, 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. It's the seven of the I am statements. The seventh of the I am statements that... John uh, reveals in his gospel, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, they're all clear claims to deity. Each one of them displaying an important attribute of God or uh, light or truth or the Old Testament picture of God being the good shepherd or God being the bread that comes down from heaven. Again, so there's no mistake in his intent. He has repeatedly over and over again declared that he was God come in the flesh. I am the true vine. Now, again, it's a word picture. It's an illustration. It's a figure of uh, speech that points not only to his deity, 
But what he's saying in part also, it's a picture of the reality that he is the true and the final source of life for all who are genuinely connected to him. He's the true and the final source of life for the branches. So the illustration is a picture of a central vine, and it's got many branches running off of it. And those branches that run off it, they remain in vital connection with the central vine, the the stalk, if you will, in order to draw their life. I am the true vine, verse 1. And he preached the statement down in verse 5. I am the vine. And again, when he uses that word true, uh, althenos, it's he's in essence saying, I am the perfect vine. Again, he's making a profound statement, obviously, concerning his deity. But he's also saying that through him and him only, the life of God flows. Through him and through him only, the life of God flows. Remember, the nation of Israel had um, become apostate. We talked about that. I don't want to spend a great deal of time on it this week. But I told you one of the reasons I think that Jesus uses the illustration of the vine here at this point is because God used that illustration of uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel was pictured as God's vine or his vineyard. God had designed for the nation of Israel to accomplish certain purposes in the world, to be a spiritual blessing to men. He planted them. He cared for them. But God's vineyard degenerated. It bore no fruit. God had done everything possible to create a fruit-bearing environment, yet Israel was spiritually barren. They were unfaithful. They were fruitless. So God took away their protective wall. Uh, He left them unprotected. And nation after nation, as you know, throughout history, has trampled down uh, uh, Israel. Israel forfeited their privileged position by their apostasy, by their continual disobedience, and by their rejection of Christ. Uh, They disqualified themselves. Therefore, God has temporarily set them aside as the mediating channel of spiritual blessing and productivity to the world. And connection with, or a connection with God, therefore, doesn't come through them. Just because you're born of Abraham, Jesus says that's not the issue. Connection with God doesn't come through the nation of Israel. Spiritual blessing doesn't come through that nation. Spiritual blessing comes through uh, uh, and the life of God only comes through a true connection with the true vine, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the true vine. Now, we looked at a couple of passages of Scripture last week out of Isaiah 5 and then Matthew chapter 21 to, again, show that Israel, because of its unbelief for the moment, has been temporarily set aside as God's primarily witness, uh, God's primary witness and blessing to the nations. And I think the key is, uh, the key word is Temporary. Because the Bible very clearly teaches that God will keep his unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. That Israel will one day return to God and bear fruit for him in his kingdom. If you like, you can sit and listen or you can turn with me. I'm going to turn pretty quickly to a couple different passages, but I just want you to hear this. Uh, Romans chapter 11. Verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. God has not rejected his people for whom he he foreknew. Drop down to verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is the covenant, my covenant with them, when I take away their sin. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Turn back to Jeremiah, if you like. Jeremiah chapter 30. And as you're turning there, I'll read Psalm 94 verse 14. Psalm 94 verse 14 says, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back into the land that I have given their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Turn over to chapter 31. Verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and a fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be searched out below them, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Turn over one chapter to chapter 32. Isaiah 32, pick it up in verse 30. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. But, verse 37, Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands in which I have driven them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good, for the good of their children after them, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will not turn away from them to do them uh, good, and I will put fear uh, of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought this great disaster on this people, So I am going to bring on all of them the good that I am promising them. Paul asked the question, God has not rejected his people. Has he? He says, may it never be the strongest negation in the Greek. Verse 2 of Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Israel has been temporarily set aside. Yes, that's true. Permanently rejected? Absolutely not. Why? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's what God's word says. In fact, if you want to turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. 
Verse 28, Jesus actually looked forward to the restoration of the nation of Israel. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The regeneration, that term, literally means new birth. So Jesus uses it to represent the rebirth of the earth under his sovereign dominion in his time of his second coming. Uh, this is literally paradise regained. This is where the earth and the world and men are going to be given a new uh, nature described in great detail through the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. By John in Revelation chapter 20, the first uh, 15 verses, this is not the eternal state. This is a literal time in time in, in this earth. It's not the eternal state described in uh, Revelation 21. This is the restoration of the earth where the righteousness is going to flourish, where peace is going to abound. Because Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he'll sit on his throne. He'll rule over the nations. So Jesus looked forward uh, to a time of future restoration of the nation of Israel. Now back in John again, so I, I think in part he's talking about this issue. Uh, he, he's saying, look, you are the vine in the Old Testament, and, and, but I am the true vine. Now, uh, life is not coming with your connection to the nation of Israel because, again, at the time, uh, Israel is apostate. They've turned from God. But that hasn't counseled out God's uh, gifts and God's calling, the disobedience of men. I am the true vine, and verse 1 continues, says, my father is the vine dresser. So again, the Lord is not denying his deity or his equality with the Father when he says, I am the vine. Uh, again, he emphasizes that when he says, I am the vine. He, again, is saying that I am the source. I am the source of life. I am the sustainer of life. So in the analogy, again, this plant analogy, this vine and, vine and branch analogy, he's saying, look, look, I'm the plant. I'm, the, I'm the, the stock. The Father is the one who cares for the plant. He's the vine dresser. And again, he's pointing out that, that the Father is the one who has cared for the Son. Uh, and uh, who uh, and cares for all those who are joined to the Son. Now, again, in the culture, everybody would have understood that. Disciples would have been familiar with this role as a, uh, of a vine dresser in, in vineyards uh, because the vineyards were planted everywhere, and when a vineyard was planted, a vine dresser had to care for that, for that vineyard. So he cut off branches that didn't produce fruit. They cut those branches off so they wouldn't take energy or the sap, if you will, uh, from the fruit-bearing branches, uh, and because uh, you didn't want that life energy wasted or the plant would produce less fruit. So then he continually, the vine dresser continually prunes those branches that are in fact fruit bearing so that they might bear more fruit. Again, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it might bear more fruit. So again, two kinds of branches, two kinds of disciples, two kinds of individuals that profess attachment to Christ. You have the genuine that abide in him, and then you have the false that do not. The false that do not. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, some people like to use this verse, verse 2 here in John 15, as some kind of proof text to say that a true believer who's uh, seemingly joined to Christ can lose their salvation. But that can't possibly be what the verse is speaking about. can't possibly be what the verse is teaching. Because elsewhere, Jesus has already taught that as the good shepherd, he says of his true sheep, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 28. 
That's in keeping with what Jesus taught in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I raise it up on the last day. Genuine believers cannot lose their salvation because of the work of Christ. And when Jesus Christ gives eternal life, he gives life, listen, he gives life that is eternal, not temporary. To the woman at the well, John 14, 4, or John 4, 14, John 4, 14, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become into him a well of water springing up into eternal life. And again, that John 10 passage, John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they shall follow me, I give eternal life to them, they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. So this verse can't possibly be talking about genuine believers losing their salvation. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He's talking about those who've never had a vital connection to the vine in the first place, just like Judas Judas's only connection to Christ was superficial. Judas never had a true life-giving, fruit-producing connection to Jesus. He never truly abided in Christ. Therefore, he was never truly saved. One commentary makes this remark. It says, The prototypical branch who has not remained is Judas, who departed in John 13, verse 30. He did not bear fruit, and it is now in the realm of darkness, a mere tool of Satan. His eternal destiny being cast into the fire of eternal judgment is still to come. It seems most likely, therefore, that the branches who do not bear fruit are taken away and buried, or taken away and burned as false, uh, uh, that are taken away and burned are false believers, those who profess to belong to Jesus, but in reality do not belong to him. comes out of the New English translation in their commentary. The false branches, they profess to belong to Jesus, but they really don't belong to him. So that's exactly what I just said earlier. The genuine saving faith is marked by fruitfulness. Not by your claim to Christ, but by fruitfulness. By your life. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So every branch that doesn't bear fruit and takes away, that's false followers, false believers, and all antichrists. 1 John 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard, antichrist is coming, and now many antichrists have arisen. From this we know it's the last hour. Now, antichrists in John's description are all opponents to the truth. All opponents to the truth, all false teaching, all false teachers, all that is in variance with uh, apostolic eyewitness and testimony about who Jesus Christ is and all uh, who teach in opposition to uh, the Bible. Verse 19, 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that they might be shown that they're not all of us. So antichrists, plural antichrists, fall into this kind of category. They, too, may be thought of branches that didn't bear fruit. They, they departed from the ranks of Christians because they never really belonged. Uh, they never really had uh, a life-giving flow from the Savior. And, and again, this is not something like ethereal out there. You know that. You know people in your life that falls into this category. 
people you thought were genuine believers, people you thought, man, this person's taught Sunday school. This person was my pastor growing up. And they flee, they leave the faith. They went out from us because they were not really of us. That's the issue. It's not what we say, it's what comes out of our life and our doctrine. And again, sadly, there are a lot of people in the church that fall into this category. A lot of nominal Christians. Those who call themselves believers. Those who attend church with other Christians. Those who engage in many of the activities that genuine Christians do. But nonetheless, they don't produce the life of Christ. They don't produce true saving faith. There might be even somebody in this room or the room behind me or watching via the live stream that falls into this category. Now you show up sometimes. You show some interest in Christ. You've made some kind of profession of faith in Christ, but your life doesn't manifest the power of Christ. Your life doesn't produce spiritual fruit. By way of the testimony of the scripture, you're a false follower. You're not genuinely saved. Because the mark is fruitfulness. This, in this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I didn't write that. I just read it to you. It's what the text of Scripture says. In fact, John's been talking about this quite a lot throughout his book. If you might have noticed this idea of false faith, he talked about it all the way back starting in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. Well, that sounds pretty good. Many believed, holding the signs of what he was doing. I'll tell you, come to 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew, the, he knew all men, because he did not need to, anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew it was in man's heart. He, he knew their profession of faith was nothing more than superficial, false faith. They, quote-unquote, believed, but it was only superficial, not salvifically. I think I told you when we went through that text of material, uh, they believed, but Jesus didn't believe their belief. Right? So the same thing when you come to chapter 6. There's that massive crowd that's following Jesus, right? He feeds many, 20, 25,000 people. He creates food. It's an undeniable activity of God. And many, quote-unquote, followed him until he made some pretty specific, harsh demands of them. And as a result of that, it says in verse 66 of that chapter, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They left. They didn't stay. They're false followers. Verse 67 of that chapter, John 6, Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was the one of the twelve who was going to betray him. So again, you have false faith, true faith compared to false faith, genuine versus the superficial, and mixed in with the genuine faith, you have a false believer, a devil. They live side by side. You see that superficial association in, in uh, John uh, chapter 8, verse 30. It says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. 
Many people made some kind of superficial profession of attachment to Jesus. But Jesus says in verse 31 of John 8, Jesus therefore was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my words, then you are truly my disciples, or disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. But most of them did not. Most of them who make professions of faith in Christ do not. Jesus says it's only those who obey him. If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. It's only those who obey what Jesus says who are true believers, because there are many superficial followers of Christ who defect don't obey him. John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. No shortage of believers. Many of the rulers, quote-unquote, believe, but they were unwilling to pay the cost, the high cost of being associated with Christ. Therefore, they're nothing more than superficial followers. They're not genuinely united with Christ. They were like Judas. John 13, 9, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, he was bathed, only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. He knew Judas was going to betray him. But Judas has not at this point been yet exposed And people who superficially attach themselves to Christ, they never bear true spiritual fruit. Again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6 of John 15 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire. They are burned. That is judgment. Dramatic judgment. Eternal judgment being cut off and sent to hell. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And, verse 2, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Again, only two kinds of branches. Those who don't bear fruit are taken away, false Christians. Those with a false association with Christ, again, Judas being the classic example, of a false branch, and those true branches who do indeed bear fruit. They bear fruit. Genuine believers. They bear some spiritual fruit. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. And again, that clearly sets them apart from the false branches. Because every genuine believer in Christ, every genuine follower of Christ, is going to produce some kind of spiritual fruit. That's how you know you're genuinely saved there will be some kind of spiritual fruit in your life, some kind of spiritual fruit in the life of a genuine believer. And the question is, well, what is spiritual fruit? Here you go. Answer, righteousness. Righteousness. Apart from Christ, we are all unrighteous. Spiritual fruit is righteousness, righteous attitudes, righteous longings, righteous desires, righteous affections, righteous virtues, righteous behaviors. That's the manifestation of the life of God. Where life of God exists, there will be fruit, the fruit of righteousness in that person's life. Galatians 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Ephesians 5, verse 9, for the fruit of light that consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Philippians 1.10, so that you may prove the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, what comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1, verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel, which came to you, just as in all the world, it is continually bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing uh, in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of truth, verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Genuine saving faith, a genuine association with the person of Jesus Christ produces spiritual fruit. And here's the word, always. Always. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. Fruit of righteousness is always evidence in a genuine believer. That's the mark. Spiritual fruit is evidence that God is at work in your life. If someone claims to know Christ and they have no fruit, no manifestation of righteousness, of the righteousness of God in their life, in deeds or in attitudes, then no matter what they have said with their lips, the profession of their faith is not genuine, it is superficial. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad tree the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. John the Baptist, excuse me, warned the Pharisees, the false uh, religious leaders of Israel, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham Verse 10, Matthew 3, verse 10, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit is taken away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. John Philip and his... uh, Phillips in his commentary says this, according to Jesus here and throughout the Gospels, the true mark of those who belong to him and are saved by are saved is bearing of good fruit. We are saved not by good fruit or by any work on our own, but faith in Christ alone. The good fruit, however, is the only proof that our profession of faith is true and saving. 
being present in church, receiving the rite of baptism, having membership on the church rolls, being part of a godly family are not proofs of salvation and new life. Moreover, it's possible for a person to affirm the basic truths of Christian belief yet not possess none of Christ but yet possess none of Christ's life. The only true proof of salvation is fruit. It is the sole distinction between the two kinds of branches that Jesus mentions. Both are connected to him in some sense, but one does not bear fruit is taken away while the fruitful branch is tended. He says again, you will recognize them by their fruits, as he taught in Matthew chapter 7. It follows, he says, that we should never encourage a person to have assurance of salvation through mere profession of faith until that fruit has proved itself by bearing fruit. Until that faith has proved itself by bearing fruit, the best of Christians are imperfect and flawed in many ways, but all true Christians bear some fruit in the form of obedience to God's commands, faithfulness to Christ before the world, and a cultivation of inward spiritual graces. That's good. All true Christians bear some kind of fruit. And again, that's the thing that sets the branches apart in the analogy. The genuine believer from the false. Genuine fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So here's the question. Do you have any signs of life, spiritual life in you? Do you see any sign of real spiritual fruit in your own life? That's a question you have to answer. That's a question a lot of the young people who, whether you're a high school student or a college student, this is your first time away from your home. I'm a believer because my folks dragged me to church all my life, and I'm a believer because I go to a certain Christian university. I'm a believer. Okay, that's good. devil's a believer too. Is there any sign of genuine fruit in your life? That's the question that everyone has to ask. Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Does your life show any signs of righteousness? Is there an increasing desire for righteousness in your life? Is there any faithfulness to God, to his word, especially before an unbelieving world? Because if you're genuinely attached to Christ, and Christ's life genuinely flows through you, then your life must demonstrate that fact that you're truly joined in. If you've truly trusted Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sin and new life in him, then there will be signs of that new life in you. Old things have passed, new things have come. New desires, new devotions, new loves. A life of righteousness. I didn't say perfection. But there should be some recognition that you're no longer who you used to be. There should be some recognition that now your desires have changed and there's some recognition, something that's recognizable of an increasing hungering and thirst for righteousness, uh, an ever-increasing sense of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. If you tell me you're a Christian and you're out of control and you blow up at everybody and you never have any peace and you just say, well, that's just the way I am, I say that might be just the way you are, but that's not the way Christians act. If we have new life in Christ, then we have new life in Christ. 
If old things have passed away and behold, new things have come, then old things have passed away and new things have come. We've got to stop uh, justifying our disobedience or stop justifying the fact that we're not really connected with the vine. It's hard talk, I know. Only because I love you. Only because Christ loved these men did he have this hard talk with them on his way to his death and execution. He knew it was coming. He knew it was coming next. They don't. This is the last time he can say something to them that they really need to pay attention to and figure out what I'm saying and understand the truth. Now this is an explanation for Judas and his defection. He was never really part of us. And throughout the history of the church, there's always been people who've never really been part of the church who looked like they were, thought they were, acted like they were, you thought they were, and they defected because they weren't who they claimed to be. Do you see any signs of spiritual fruit in your life? Do you desire to please the Lord? Do you desire to honor him? Do you have a desire to tell others about Christ? If not, if you don't see any signs of spiritual fruit in your life, then listen. This is a call to repentance. It's a wake-up call. It's a warning. Not time to walk out of the room going, man, he talks too hard to me. I'm never coming back here again. I just can't deal with this guy anymore. Lord bless. I hope you don't do that. Have a great life. But listen, this one last time you're listening to me before you leave. Okay? This is a wake-up call. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to evaluate your life, to repent of your sin before it's too late, and a call to truly come to Christ, to to call out to God for mercy, confess your need of a Savior, beg Him to change you. Because if you don't see any signs of life in you, you might not be who you think you are. Because Jesus said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown to the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Paul warned the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself, see if you're in the faith, examine yourself, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Because there are many religious people out there. Quote, unquote, right? Many, quote, unquote, religious people. Many who people who only have a superficial relationship with Christ. Some of it is uh, deliberate. Some of it's conscious, I think. Some of it's just plain out hypocrisy. But there's a lot of people out there that are deceived. I referenced it last week. Again, I didn't write it. I just read it like I'll do right now. Out of Matthew 7, where the Lord says he will hear the many. M-A-N-Y, the many. Matthew 7, verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and and do many works in your name? Verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, you can fail a lot of of tests when you're in high school or college, you know, and you'll probably recover from it. But to say you're a genuine follower of Christ, when in reality you're not, to fail that test, that's going to be eternally costly. Because all false branches are cut down, they're cast into the fire, and they're burned. 
And again, every genuine believer bears spiritual fruit of some kind. You look it up this afternoon, Matthew chapter 13, 3 through 8, that parable of the soils. There's good soil there. It produces fruit. It's planted. It produces fruit. And a true believer, it bears fruit. It's, it's varied. Some 100-fold, some 60-fold, some 30. But it bared good fruit. Because those who are genuinely connected with Christ bear some kind of fruit of righteousness. Some kind of spiritual fruit, always. Every branch in me that doesn't bear good fruit, or does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, here it is, he prunes it. He prunes it. That it may bear more fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener. Done a little bit of trying to recover some of my apple trees when they were 30 foot tall and I lived in Cedarville and it's probably not helpful to get a 30 foot tall apple tree so I've done a little pruning but pruning is important in agriculture right? horticulture, carrying the branches sometimes vine, dresser, vine dressers they come and they remove the tips of shoots that grow uh, too fast too high the, the shoots grow too high and it's robbing the nutrients that the original stock needs to grow stronger Sometimes I've, I've read that sometimes vine dressers, when they plant new uh, grapes, new grape stalks in the, in, in the ground, uh, they won't allow them to bear fruit for about the first three years so that stalk can grow stronger and stronger. They just nip them off. Nip them off. Again, sometimes branches have to be cut off to prevent them from being broken, snapped by the wind. If they're, again, growing too fast, they're putting too much energy into the tips, not back into the stalk. Sometimes branches... Uh, aren't producing, so you cut them off. Suckers sometimes grow up from the ground. All these kind of crazy things come out. I have a tree in my front yard that continues to put something out the side. I cut it off. It keeps putting something out the side. I want it to go up. It keeps putting something out the side. You know, I cut it off, and it just keeps coming back. I was noticing it today on our way here. i got to cut it off again. I want it to go up, not that direction. So suckers, they come up. they got to be cut off. They're trying to rob strength from the vine. They're not applying sap to the branches to produce fruit. Sometimes you have too many clusters of of fruit. Sometimes there's some you have to kind of thin out the cluster so the ones that are there can grow bigger. So pruning is a constant process is the issue. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. The vine dresser prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, the word prunes there means to cleanse of filth or impurity. It could be uh, anything. It could be from clearing the soil in advance of weeds, stones, before you plant a crop. Or it can, again, be purging these random shoots from branches, even fruitful branches. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, again, in agriculture, this is accomplished by the vine dresser by taking a knife which obviously causes some quote-unquote pain, I don't know, to the branch. But it's done for the purpose of gaining the maximum amount of fruit from the vine. And obviously, if you take it over to a spiritual analogy, to the spiritual analogy on a spiritual level, the Father does that in our own life for our own spiritual good. He strips away. He cuts away those things that are spiritually detrimental that could be painful in our life. He might strip or cut away relationships that are a hindrance to our faith. He might take the knife, as it were, to our bad habits. He might do something that would assail our prayerless lives and give us things to pray about. 
sufferings, trials, hardships, sickness, loss of material possessions, persecution, slander, loss of a loved one, grief over a relationship. These are the kind of things that the vine dresser puts us through in the process that hurts, that causes pain, but in essence, at the end, is for our good. Now, I know at times we may wonder if the vine dresser actually knows what he's doing, but he does because he applies his skill with impeccable love. And again, I think it's important for us to understand that the work of the divine vine dresser on our life is not punishment. Uh, Again, he is cutting away those things that are not helpful. The author of the book of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 10, But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Again, it's the work of the divine, the, the divine vine dresser. It's the work of God the Father, not to harm us, but to help us, to make us more fruitful, to, to increase our faith. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James says in James 1-2, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when we are experiencing various trials and difficulties, problems in our life, we should not lapse into self-pity, fear, or complaining. But we should remember that God, our Father, is trying to make us look more like his Son. He's trying to conform us more to the image of Christ. Therefore, someone once said this, we should look past the pruning process to the goal. We should look past the pruning process to the goal. And the goal, again, is that we would produce more fruit, that we would look more like Christ, that we would lead better and more profitable lives in Christ. Again, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. David said in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And that's the knife, if you will, and the metaphor we're looking at here in John 15. That's the method of pruning. It's the vine dresser's knife, and it's the word of God, verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, the word clean here in verse 3 is the noun form of the same word used back in verse 2 for prunes. Again, it's God's word. God's word is the tool, if you will, that cleans, that prunes. Uh, The vine dresser prunes the sin out of our lives uh, that makes us more fruitful. Again, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Again, who's with him? The eleven. In the context, Jesus is only speaking to the eleven. Judas has already departed. So those eleven, he already told them back in John chapter 13, verse 10, you are all, you are clean, but not all of you. Uh, again, referring not all of you to the betrayer Judas. The rest of you, you're clean. He's saying the eleven true disciples, the true 
uh, disciples of Christ, they're genuine believers. They're, they're truly saved. They have a genuine relationship with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were actually part of the vine. They're in a living, vital, life-giving relationship to Christ. They believed everything Christ said to be true. They didn't have perfect understanding. We, we get that. But nevertheless, they believed in him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's the word of God, the word of Christ. Uh, they, they embraced the gospel. They were regenerated through the person of the Holy Spirit because they believe Christ. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So again, the word of God, that's the knife, if you will, in the vine dresser's hand. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's really the word of God that does its work in our heart. And someone has rightly said this, says, God is the one who orders our trouble. God orders our trouble. Look, and look, 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 there's nothing random in this world. There's nothing by accident or chance, bad luck. No, God orders our trouble. Our Father in heaven loves us. And he takes trouble and brings it into our life. He orders trouble into our life to use it in our life to help prune away those things that are not helpful or those things that are, that are sinful to our spiritual health. Ask yourself this, you who are older for sure. Has not trouble in your life driven you closer to God? Closer to Christ? Has not affliction made you more responsive to his word? Certain situations, troubles, issues, problems that come into our life. And when we react wrongly, when we complain, when we moan, when we grumble, then the word comes and convicts us. The word comes, it convicts us, and it cuts out our hostility, our anger. It's the word that cuts into our questioning God because it's the word that indicts us. Someone has said the trials are the handle of the knife. The blade is the word of God. Affliction is the handle and the occasion, but the pruning the scripture, the knife that cuts in order that we might bear more fruit. So the Father is the vine dresser. He brings the trial. He ordains it in our life. He orders it. He takes the word, the blade, the word of God that comes and corrects us. It cuts out our disrespect of him. It cuts out our not trusting him and his goodness and his sovereignty and his wisdom. And it cuts us. Spurgeon once said something along the lines of, it's the word that prunes the Christian, it's the truth that purges him. Scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses out the Christian. Right? It's the word. The goal is to make more fruit, bear much more fruit. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Aren't you glad life's not random? Even if with something devastating comes into your life, something tragic, that you're not a victim of chance. I 
I'm thankful that when I had cancer many years ago that God ordained my cancer, that it wasn't just bad luck. I can't deal with bad luck. I can deal with sovereignty. I can deal with God's goodness, his character. I can take the experience and, and, and go back to the word of God and see the things that need to be cut out of my wrong and proper thinking of the one who loved me eternally, loved me in time, gave his son, he died for me, raised him from the dead so that I might be with him in eternal future. I can focus on that, not accident. God's kindness, the pruning hand of our loving father. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you as... The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now in verse 4, that phrase, abide in me, is in the mood of command. Again, it's the word meno, stay, abide, remain. Don't leave. Don't forsake me. Don't walk away. Don't do what Judas did or what other false followers like Judas do. Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't depart. Don't depart from your faith. Again, abide in me, next phrase, and I in you. That's the key. That's the key. The branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Right? So neither can you unless you abide in me. And what he's going to do from verse 4 forward is he's going to start laying out blessings of abiding, profound promises of abiding for those who stay united with Christ. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. From apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me and also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken, that you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Blessings of abiding. Again, the, the key, how, how do you know you're genuinely saved? My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and then prove, right, you're my disciples. And the only way that you can bear much fruit is to do what? Stay connected to the vine. Stay, stay connected, right? Abide. So again, what does it mean to be a genuine believer? What does it mean to be saved? Again, I was having a conversation with somebody this just last week, and they told me they were a believer. And I said, okay, well, what's your life like? Because a lot of people say they're believers. And I actually told this fellow this. I said, James 2, verse 19, says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and they shudder. Demons have good theology. Demons, quote-unquote, believe. But there's something more than just believing that God is, because, again, the devil believes that. He shakes, obviously, he's not saved, neither are his demons. What does it mean to be genuinely saved? What, what do we need to stand in God's presence? What we need is what we don't possess. What we need is righteousness. 
And righteousness doesn't belong to us. Righteousness comes to us as a gift of God's grace through his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes to us by abiding in him. I am the true vine. I'm the only true source. I'm the only true source of divine life. I'm the only true source of divine righteousness. So again, what does it mean to be generally saved? What does it mean to be a true Christian? Again, the answer verse 4, abide in me and I in you. That's what it means to be a Christian. At the bottom line level, abide in me and I in you, which is the baseline, I guess, the most irreducible minimum that really takes you to the height of eternal infinity. I mean, abide in me and I in you. It's our union with Christ. The fact that God dwells in the believer that makes one genuinely saved. I think I mentioned it last week, to some extent anyway. It's probably not good enough to say, are you a Christian, for you to say, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. There's a lot of people who have a personal relationship with Jesus. The devil has a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's not a very good one. Somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? And not, not, a gen, not a personal, no. What does it mean? I think the most amazing, truthful uh, reality of a genuine believer that separates the genuine believer from the false believer, again, is verse 4, abide in me and I in you. I in you. We, we spoke about that back in chapter 14. Look back there real quick. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you in a little while. The world will behold me no more. But you will behold me because I live. You shall also live in that day. You shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. I in me, or abide in me, I in you, right? Abide in me and I in you. Romans 8, Christ in you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 uh, The Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you know how the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Galatians 2 and 20 Christ lives in me. 1 Corinthians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you get the analogy? The only people who are genuinely united to the person of Jesus Christ are going to produce the life of Christ. And if you're genuinely united to the person of Jesus Christ, you will produce Christ's life in and through you. He's promised that. So what is it that distinguishes the true from the false? Christ. Christ in you. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, there's a lot there, right? I told you that last week. For some foolish reason, when I started out this week, I actually thought I might make it through verse 11, but I had to get to verse 4 because that's the title I gave earlier in the week of what the sermon was going to be called, so I had to get to verse 4. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this wonderful portion of Scripture that comes as a a charge, a challenge, really, to the unbeliever. 
uh, and to us all to examine ourselves, to make sure that Christ really is abiding within us and we're abiding in Christ. And, and again, it's just like the warning passage back in Matthew 7. You, you give those kind of warnings, these kind of warning passages out of your tremendous love because you desire that men would repent, come to a knowledge of the truth, be saved, not face you in eternal punishment. You have provided that way of escape through the cross, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, through your tremendous mercy, through the substitutionary death, burial, resurrection of Christ, our wonderful Savior. Oh, Lord, I pray that you take what has been helpful here, truthful, and apply it, burn it into the hearts and souls of everyone who's listened, that we might evaluate ourselves to see if Christ really is in us, how we are producing the righteousness that you've promised. And then for those who fall short, that this might be a day of repentance, not a day of sorrow, but a day of uh, incredible happiness, because it's your word that does the work that cuts into the soul and the spirit that your work that your word that does the the work that calls us from where we are to where we need to be and it's only because of your great kindness and amazing grace we praise you we love you we adore you and we pray these things in christ's name amen all right take out your uh, bulletin and in your bulletin you'll find the songs for our time together in the Lord's Supper. Isn't God's word good? I'm telling you. I mean, I, I knew John 4 was going to, or John, the whole book of John was going to be good. And I kind of looked forward to certain things as I've been working my way through it. And the more I work my way through it, it's like it just keeps getting better and better. You know, I haven't even got to what I was really excited about getting to. And it's a few chapters in the future.